ladies and gentlemen. Um, welcome to this lecture this evening, which is um, organised by the Test Pilots Group of the Society. Um, it, it's a great personal pleasure to me for me to introduce to you tonight Chris Yeo, um, who's going to talk to us about the Eurofighter 2000. Chris and I go back quite a long way. We worked together at uh, Boston Bow, the fighter test building down there in the mid-70s. Um, Chris then left the Air Force after that tour and went to work for British Aerospace up at Wharton. And over the years, he's been involved in all of their um, frontline programs Jaguar <coughs> Tornado, the uh, very successful fly by wire Jaguar program, the uh, experimental aircraft program demonstrator. Um, and he, he moved up in the company, went on to become chief test pilot, and then moved on to his present position. As director of flight operations for the whole of the military aircraft division of the company. Um, he still manages time to be actively involved in test flying and was the first British pilot to fly the Eurofighter 2000. So it's hard to imagine anybody who is better qualified to speak to us about that very important project tonight and in particular to update us on the, uh, the way in which the flight test program is going. Chris, I'm, I'm very grateful to you for coming all the way down from the wilds of Lancashire to speak to us tonight. The floor is yours. Thank you very much, Colin. Uh, well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Can I start by saying uh, uh, how pleased I am to uh, be here tonight and to see uh, so many old friends in the audience. Um, as Colin said, I'm going to talk about the uh, Eurofighter 2000, and right away I'm going to break with tradition and put a video on at the beginning. Now, the aircraft has been flying for 18 months, uh, as you will see, I think, from the video that's now showing. Now, I thought I would break with tradition and start with a video. Uh, this is rather traditional that one puts a video on at the end of the presentation. There is another one to come, but uh, despite what reports would uh, have you believe, Three, pilot, three prototypes have flown, and they've been flying very successfully. The aircraft is a pleasure to fly, and it's already demonstrating excellent performance. As you can see from the video, we've begun to open out the flight envelope and to maneuver the aircraft aggressively. These pictures were taken earlier this year uh, around Wharton and the uh, Cumbrian coast, where we do most of our test flying. Now, since then, since we took this uh, film, the uh, flight test program has moved on a pace, and soon I hope to be able to add some more video to this to show the aircraft maneuvering even more aggressively. One of the problems we have at the moment is finding, uh, is finding a camera ship that can adequately chase the aircraft. Okay, the presentation tonight, then. Uh, the aircraft at the beginning of its uh, flight demonstration program. So what I thought I would do would be to take some time to talk about the aircraft in general and then uh, concentrate on the flight test program for about the last uh, 20 minutes or so of the presentation. I intend to describe what's been achieved during the first two phases by the three flying prototypes. That's uh, DA-1, 2, and 3, uh, DA for development aircraft. But first, I'd like to give you a brief history of the aircraft, uh, explain a little bit about its aerodynamic shape, its structure, flight control system, cockpit control systems, and their routes in a long series of uh, research programs. I think equally important 
is to describe the operational requirements developed by the four customer air forces and how the design evolved to meet these. I'd like to take some time to describe the aircraft's operational systems. Since the Eurofighter is a complex aircraft, which has to excel in a wide variety of roles, a new and uh, innovative approach had to be taken if a single pilot is to, I should say, a single pilot, him or her, is to accomplish his tasks efficiently and with an acceptable workload. The prototype aircraft have been built to production standards, but they do differ from production aircraft in many respects, and they're uniquely configured to accomplish particular development tasks. So I'd like to describe a little bit about what the prototypes do, what they've done to date, what they've achieved in the flying phases, and what we aim to do next. But first, a health warning. The Empire Test Pilot School taught me to never start a presentation with an apology. However, this isn't an apology, but I thought I should at least start this presentation with a health warning. Unless you dwell in a Trappist monastery, have forsaken newspapers, and have been let out only for this evening, it cannot have escaped your notice that like all high technology programs, the Eurofighter 2000 project has had its fair share of difficulties and speculation concerning its progress. Clearly then, lecturing on the aircraft is a process not unlike walking through a minefield and fraught with danger. The only way I can deal with this is to state right from the outset that I'm a test pilot. I can tell you about the aircraft, its behavior and its systems. What I cannot or will not do is talk about the politics, the finances and the contractual matters. And I hope that nobody presses me on that uh, during question times. If you do, you'll get a somewhat dusty answer. Also, the presentation has been constructed within strict security guidelines. And you'll notice in particular that much as I would like to, I've had to take most of the numerical data off the slides. Clearly, so subjects such as attack systems, performance, I can only describe in broad detail. I hope you'll be understanding of this aspect, since the alternative choice would be not to have made the presentation. And one final thing, the views expressed to mine and mine alone I'm not representing uh, uh, any of the partner companies or Eurofighter. Now, aircraft such as the Eurofighter 2000 are not conceived in a vacuum. As we all know, those of us who went to test pilot school, everything has an objective. You are aiming at an objective. They're designed to meet operational requirements and staff requirements. In the case of the Eurofighter 2000, this was a European staff target agreed by the four air forces. Furthermore, the specification placed with Eurofighter has to be met within a fixed or firm price contract. That's a very difficult feature for any complex aircraft, and I would suggest any program which includes a large amount of development. Surprisingly, the Air Forces set out their uh, joint requirements as long ago as 1985. The emphasis was then and remains on combat performance. From the list on the slide, I would also highlight reliability and maintainability, which has an equal importance as other features of the aircraft. We have, the contractors have stringent targets to meet in this respect, which will keep the life cycle cost of the aircraft down. The requirement for low mass is an interesting one. Clearly, as well as influencing performance of an aircraft, there is said to be a strong correlation between mass and cost i.e. the larger the mass, 
the greater the cost of the aircraft. While I must express some scepticism of this, it is an undoubtedly excellent design discipline to minimize the mass of an aircraft. Like test pilots, all aircraft tend to acquire middle-aged fat and as the design matures, with an obvious uh, deleterious effect on all aspects of performance. So a specification which penalizes mass growth, as the Eurofighter one does, forces the design team team to keep a very careful watch on any tendency towards an increase in mass. And I think in the past other aircraft that have had this design discipline have turned out to be a success. And although it's tough at the beginning, it ultimately does pay off. The European staff requirement focused on a single-seat air superiority fighter. Now that Everyone must be aware that there's an ongoing debate within the RF about the merits of a two-man crew versus a single pilot. However, most air forces do operate single-seat fighters, and the capabilities of modern avionics will make the task easier for one man to perform. It's undoubtedly uh, true that the provision of a second cockpit with all the equipment that goes with it, ejection seats, oxygen equipment, life support equipment in general, does drive the size and mass of the aircraft up. And this ultimately means for a given thrust to reduce performance. I'm sure this debate will continue for many years to come. But I think perhaps the eventual solution will be to fulfill the main role of air defense with a single-seat aircraft, but to equip the two-seat aircraft for special roles in addition to its main ones, such as target marking, defense suppression, and so on. The aircraft is optimized for air-to-air -air combat, including both beyond visual range and canopy-to-canopy -canopy combat. However, in addition to that, the Royal Air Force and the uh, Spanish Air Forces also have requirements for ground attack. Although I can't be specific, the aircraft is required to outperform its contemporaries in both roles, and it shows every signs of being able to do this. You will notice, I hope, that the pilots were able to influence the European staff requirement and keep a built-in gun. It's uh, apparent to me that all non-aviating operational assessment scientists question the need for a gun, but I've never yet met a fighter pilot who would willingly dispense with it. I'm glad to say that the Eurofighter 2000 will have the powerful Mauser cannon internally mounted and built in as a, a, a equipment fit. A few highlights that I can put up from the aircraft's performance characteristics. The brakes off to 35,000 feet at 1.5 mark in less than two and a half minutes is driven primarily by the beyond visual range combat regime. The interceptor requirement, for the interceptor requirement, one must attempt to give one's long range missiles higher energy at launch than the opponent's. I'll be coming back to beyond visual range combat later on, but that's all I'd like to say for the moment. The aircraft does have the ability to supercruise, and by supercruise what I mean is it will maintain supersonic flight in dry power once one has accelerated in reheat. It will have that capability with EJ200 engines. It does not have that performance at the moment with the RB199 engines currently fitted to the first two prototypes. Although I must say the supersonic performance is very good indeed. One thing I'd like to uh, highlight from the supersonic performance is its supersonic persistence. Now the requirement of the aircraft is to have an overall range in endurance similar to an ADV tornado. 
And I must say, this it does easily, judging by the results of chasing the prototypes with a tornado and flying in the Eurofighter. The unstable canard delta really pays off in supersonic flight and easily achieves something like twice the supersonic duration of the chase, starting with more or less equal uh, fuel loads. The air to surface payload range is to be equal to the Tornado IDS and 50% better than the Jaguar. The reason I put that up is that's the aircraft it, uh, in for the ground attack role that it will replace in Royal Air Force service. The aircraft is required to be fairly independent of main base facilities. And this was one of the provisions of the European staff requirement. It should have stalled performance. Now, I would think most people would expect with a built-in thrust and the low basic empty mass, the takeoff performance really isn't too difficult to meet. Even with the RB199 engines, and I'll be showing you some thrusts from the EJ200 later on, even with the RB199 engines, quite a lot of ballast and quite heavy instrumentation DA2 is usually airborne well before the rag cable. Now, you know the rag cable is about 1,300 feet in on a standard RF runway, but the takeoff point is some distance uh, from the end of the runway. So the aircraft is very sprightly on takeoff. The landing performance, however, is more difficult, especially as it's achieved by wheel brakes alone. A brake chute is fitted to all the prototypes, but only the RF have it as a standard fit on production aircraft. The arrestor hook, of course, so that was listed on the slide, is only used in an emergency, either for an aborted takeoff or landing with um, specific failures. Another feature from the aircraft on its deployment capabilities, it does have a very powerful APU, which has the capability to run all the systems up for ground checkout. And it will also start the uh, EJ200 engines more or less simultaneously. And we have a neat... Uh, facility in the uh, production aircraft where the pilot will be able to start the APU as he boards the aircraft, get strapped in while the APU runs up, and then start the engines on a, on a scramble start. Now, those of you who've tried to uh, ferry conventional military aircraft will know how difficult it is to get oxygen, gaseous or liquid, other than at military airfields. And even there, it's fairly difficult where the connectors all seem to be different. Like several other modern aircraft, in the Eurofighter 2000, we bleed compressor air, pass it through a molecular sieve to provide breathable oxygen to the pilot. Um, clearly, the OBOG system, the onboard oxygen generation system, is backed by a fairly large emergency bottle in the seat, and that can be used if the supply is cut off for any reason. A few flight safety features. I think this is uh, inherent in any modern design just to cover a, a few of them. Personally, I have some difficulty believing in uh, statements about high or low work pilot workloads. I actually think that when you're in combat or in test flying or when you're working in military aircraft, you work at 100%. I think what we're actually trying to say and what the people that measure workload are trying to say is that what does change is the productive output that can be, you can increase that by careful cockpit design. And the pilot can be very much helped by that by using an efficient cockpit. One other aspect I'd pick out from the uh, slide on flight safety is that the flight control system will have the option of uh, automatic recovery from unusual positions should the pilot choose to do that. 
and that there is a very considerable redundancy of systems built into the basic design. And one of the prime design drivers for us was the beyond range, beyond visual range combat. This scenario poses particularly difficult requirements on the attack and ident system, particularly the latter, identification. It also means that the aircraft must have high performance, I've already mentioned that, particularly supersonic performance, to give the long-range missiles the most energy and therefore the most range at launch. But the aircraft must also have a high su sustained supersonic performance so that it can turn away from the missiles launched by opposing fighters. Otherwise, the fight simply ends in a, a nuclear mutual destruction. Uh, this is another feature which I found much loved by operational analysis, but markedly less popular with pilots. If all one wanted was an aircraft that was good at beyond visual range combat, it would look markedly different, I think, from the Eurofighter. Clearly, any fighter must have an excellent close-in combat capability and with the attributes that I put on this slide. Most combat studies that I've taken part in show that air-to-air combat always tends to eventually become to a turning fight, mostly but not exclusively subsonic. Given today's agile fighters and missile systems, escape from a close fight is very difficult to achieve. So if one does go into a canopy-to-canopy fight, you'd better be in there to win. All right, so I've, decided, I've just described how the European staff target drove the aircraft, some of the aspects of the aircraft. So having been given the specification, what the basic characteristics of the, work, of the aircraft were to be, it could then be deduced what technologies were necessary to meet the performance targets. And on this slide, I've tried to match uh, some characteristics against technologies. So in other words, I'm making the point that the technology is not there for its own sake, it's there because it's necessary to meet a requirement. So for instance, if I take the top one, uh, a single-seat aircraft was specified and uh, for several reasons, and that was really deduced to only be possible by exploiting the flexibility bestowed by a cockpit with electronic displays, utilizing advanced avionics to collect, sort, and prioritize the various sources of information. The high performance required drove the design towards an unstable canard delta configuration and a new engine optimized for the fighter role. So this is the design that emerged. This is DA2. And it's flying over the uh, Irish Sea. This is the first British prototype and this was during the first flight test phase. Now, while I'm on the uh, screen, perhaps I'll just point out a few features of the aircraft. Starting from the front, the prototype aircraft, the early prototype aircraft, do have a nose boom uh, as an independent pitot static system with your and sidesilent vanes. They do not have a radar. In the uh, radome is uh, ballast and an instrumentation system. Here on the side of the aircraft is the head for the infrared search and track system. Coming down along the aircraft, the air brake is hinged up on the spine behind the cockpit. I think you can just see the lips of the air intakes in the low speed position. They're scheduled with uh, mark and incidence. 
the uh, missiles on the aircraft. It was a decision that we made early on with this aircraft that as it was going to be a fighter, we would fly in an operational fit right from the beginning. So the aircraft has always flown with four long-range missiles and two dummy sidewind missiles. Most prototypes fly in the clean configuration. We flew this aircraft in an operational configuration to emphasize the point that it is an operational fighter. On the wingtips, on both wingtips, are pods that will eventually house elements of the uh, defensive aid subsystem. It's a single fin, and you can see from the uh, nozzles that the aircraft's fitted with RB199 engines. I'll show you a picture later on of the aircraft with EJ200 engines, and it's quite different. And the engines are standard Tornado, except they don't have thrust reverse. One of the other things I would say about the aircraft, you can see from where I'm sitting in the cockpit what a good uh, uh, visibility the aircraft does have. The cockpit sills come basically just above your elbows, and the visibility, without uh, tilting your head, is down beyond the uh, canard tips. And by putting your head round, you can see either side of the fin by turning your head either way. So you really do have a very good view from the uh, uh, cockpit. Another feature of the aircraft is that the flaperons at the back of the wing are split, and they're driven independently. This gives us uh, two features. One is redundancy of control surface, and secondly, should we choose to later on, one could use these independently to drive the lift loads inboard and then do some I use that to do lift, lift, lift alleviation on the wing, or bending alleviation on the wing. Finally, the aircraft does have these leading edge flaps. I still like to call them flaps because there's no slot. A lot of other people like to call them slats. These are down in the high lift position. I really don't like putting wiring diagrams up at presentations like this. I'm going to put this one up, and I promise you it's the only one that I'm going to put up, uh, an organizational diagram. But I thought it was important to make the point that the aircraft is a four-nation, four-air force air, uh, aircraft. Those are the uh, four contractors reporting into Eurofighter. Similarly, the engine manufacturers of the EJ-200 report to Eurojet, and we're both monitored by the uh, NEFMA organization, which represents the four customers. All those bodies, Eurofighter, Eurojet, and NEFMA, are co well, they were co-located. They're actually located in Munich, and uh, the companies are regulated by German law. This next slide I put up with some trepidation. This is the work share. Going back to my Trappist monk <coughs> analogy, it will not have escaped, I think, anybody's noticed that this is uh, up for some debate. However, can I say that was the work share that was envisaged. It's the one that's been followed for development. Uh, what will happen for production, I don't know, and I don't think it's very fruitful to uh, speculate on that. However, the work share did lead to this production of the components for the aircraft. Again, ongoing discussion about this at the moment. Now, people often ask me if uh, producing aircraft like this all over Europe leads to production difficulties and whether the parts fit. Of course, the answer is, uh, yeah, of course they fit. Even if we built an aircraft entirely within national borders, it would be built at several factories, and it would be built to configuration-controlled drawings, and that's an essential part of our industry. 
The other thing is that three of the poor partners, of course, collaborated on the uh, uh, tornado. So yes, the aircraft does bolt together very well, and there aren't any difficulties. Now, going to the history of uh, the Eurofighter, you'd be surprised, I think, when I put that slide up. How far does one have to go back to the roots of uh, Eurofighter 2000? Well, perhaps as far as the right flyer, which is this aircraft in the Smithsonian. This aircraft shares three features with the Eurofighter, or at least three. Firstly, there wasn't much metal in the structure. Secondly, it has a canard. And thirdly, it was markedly unstable in pitch. Uh, the time to double amplitude was around 0.6 of a second, which must have made it just flyable. In fact, it was unstable in all three axes. And the pitch instability remained with the aircraft until the problem was eventually solved in uh, 1911, when the Wrights moved the canard into uh, become a tailplane, simply because they could not put the center of gravity far enough forward with the aircraft as it was configured to stabilize it. So things have moved on a little bit. The next aircraft that I'd like to put up in the development is one quite dear to my heart, uh, the Eurofighter, sorry, the Flywire Jaguar, uh, subject to a presentation which uh, I gave all of 15 years ago in this uh, room. The aircraft was intended to develop a digital flight-by-wire control system. The idea was a very sensible one that, that was to take a well-understood aircraft, and one which we knew the aerodynamics very well, and fit a flight control system. It was single-seat. It never flew with a reversionary control. Initially, it was flown while longitudinally statically stable, but it was progressively destabilized, putting ballast behind the, the fuel tanks in the spine, and then eventually by putting these fixed strakes on, which you can see there in primer. It was a very successful aircraft, and it gave uh, our company and uh, the suppliers of the flight control system every confidence in the flight control system technology. And it led on to another research aircraft, the European the Experimental Aircraft Program, which was to go to the next stage, which was to take a digital flight control system and put it into a new aircraft with rather less well-known aerodynamic features. Now, I've combined the, uh, the EAP on this slide with a number of mock-ups that were made, just to emphasize the point that the road to a new aircraft like the Eurofighter 2000 is made up of many design studies the vast majority of which don't fly, but which are used to size the aircraft, to do uh, space model fits, and so on, eventually leading to the EAP, which is the only one of the aircraft on the side other than the 2000, which flew. The EAP contributed a lot to the development of the Eurofighter. And I think a lot of people forget, everyone knows that it had a, a flight, digital flight control system, but we explored many other technologies with the aircraft. It was slightly larger, it is slightly larger than the Eurofighter 2000, it's about 20-25% heavier. But as you can see, it's a Canard Delta aircraft, it was longitudinally unstable, it did have an electronic cockpit, we used multifunction displays linked together through a data plus system, it used carbon fiber for the first time in an aircraft that I know of, a military aircraft I know of, as primary structure. The wing spars were co-bonded to the, um, the skins. 
It seems rather commonplace now, but in 1986, when this aircraft flew, it was a very innovative design. And here's some of the achievements of the aircraft. The point I'm making is that uh, a technology demonstrator, such as the EAP, showed the way for many of the features which now feature on an operational aircraft. Turning back to the Eurofighter, here's the general arrangement of the aircraft. It's got 50 square meters of wing area, and the basic mass empty is 9.75 tons. To this, you can add something like 250 kilograms, which is put aside for national fits. Nevertheless, that only comes to a 10-ton basic aircraft, which, given the thrust of the engines and the wing area, contribute to a very high power-to-weight ratio, and relatively, for a modern aircraft, relatively low wing loading. This is contributed in large measure through these structural materials which I put up on the uh, slide. Now I'm very surprised myself when I look back and when I put this slide together just how far we've come in a relatively short time. The last major European fighters, TAC aircraft such as a Tornado, were almost exclusively of aluminium alloys or steels. 40% of the Eurofighter 2000, much of it primary structure, is made of CFCs. Aluminium figures quite well down on my list. Unless it's allied with, alloyed with lithium, only something like 80%, 18% of the airframe is actually from traditional alloy. Even the uh, materials like the titanium there have uh, quite new uh, ways of being made, superplastically formed and uh, diffusion bonded, to keep the part count on the aircraft down and to keep the weight down. A brief major mention of the EJ-200. Early in the development of the uh, Eurofighter, it was realized that a new engine would be required to power the aircraft. Essentially what was needed was a more powerful engine with characteristics matched towards a fighter. I've listed the major features on the slide. The one that I would highlight is that the aircraft is, the engine is a two-spool as opposed to the RV-199, which is a three-spool engine. The EJ-200 has been running on the testbed for several years and it has demonstrated its major specification criteria. And recently, in May this year, it started flying in DA-3 at Turin. And I'm very glad to say that that engine is performing well in the aircraft. I can't divulge the operational mass of the Eurofighter 2002. I regret that. But given the empty mass of 10 tonnes, you can add your own uh, opinions for fuel and weapons. And I think you can see that with two EJ-200s giving over 40,000 pounds of thrust, uh, that it's going to be a cracking performer. Almost equally as important to a fighter pilot, I think it is very important, is that the, how high the dry thrust is on the aircraft. And it, it is there to make the aircraft uh, a good performing dry power. All fighter pilots have, I think, two, they're in two minds about reheat. Reheat's great when you need it to go, but of course it's a tremendous beacon in the sky for any sort of IR system. And it eats fuel. I've mentioned that the aircraft does have the ability to supercruise in dry power with these engines. The engines should also give a much better high altitude performance than an RV-199, which was optimized by a design for low level. Going back to the aircraft, for a small aircraft, it can certainly carry a lot of stores. 
There are 13 hard points for weapons, six of which are dedicated to air-to-air -air weapons. The railing stations are interchangeable between air-to-air -air or air-to-ground. My own opinion is that an attack aircraft should be armed with air-to-air -air weapons as well as air-to-ground weapons. It makes them much less vulnerable to fighter attack and indeed allows the attacking pilots to, aggressive, to be aggressive towards capping fighters. Now in the RAF I flew in both roles as fighter pilot and attack pilot and there is no doubt that it's much more difficult to defend against an air-to-air -air equipped attack aircraft than one that isn't equipped in air-to-air. If you're, if you're defending against something which doesn't have air-to-air -air missiles, you can afford to be fairly lax about it and sit on cap waiting for the guys to come through. If you know the chaps that you're opposing are armed and might just shoot you off cap, does not sharpen you up. Given the Eurofighter's power-to-weight ratio and wing area, it will be a formidable performer even uh, when loaded with missiles and bombs. A couple of configurations, each with six missiles and two fuel tanks. Uh, personally, I hope that the RF will normally operate in the air-to-air -air role without fuel tanks. The aircraft's got excellent endurance on internal fuel, and no matter how good, fuel tanks always take the edge off performance. Uh, I haven't shown it here, but the aircraft can also carry a fuel tank on the centerline, and it's, of course, equipped with a retractable air-to-air -air refueling probe. The aircraft will have a considerable uh, air-to-ground attack capability. The point I'd like to make from the slide is, as well as visual attack, it does have the infrared system, and it will be equipped as standard from the beginning with a cockpit that's compatible with night vision goggles. Turning to the attack and the identification system, in order that a single pilot can manage all the operational systems available to him, the data outputs of all these systems, which are complex in their own right, have to be correlated and prioritized. That's why I've shown these four principal systems linked together in a white envelope. I don't personally like the term data synergy, but I can't think of a better one, and that is what's happening. All four systems, radar, infrared, search and track, uh, infrared search and track, the IFF, and the MIDS, which is essentially a, an advanced data link, are combined to detect targets, prioritize them, and then engage them. You'll notice also, that, of course, there's only one system, which is the radar, which is a directed emitter. The aircraft makes extensive use of passive systems, such as the infrared system, and stores information from other data link users. So everything that's known about the target, targets or target is utilized uh, and prioritized for the pilot. I've said prioritized several times, because I think if you th think of this aircraft attacking opposing fighters, going in at Mark II against another Mark II aircraft, then there is precious little time to sort out what's going on and who you want to attack and who you want to fight. A few features about the radar. Unfortunately, again, security prevents me saying very much, but as you would expect, it is uh, a modern radar. It has have air-to-air -air and air-to-surface modes and it's capable of multi-target track. The radar, along with the rest of the flight test program, the radar is also flying now in a BAC-111 in uh, um, rudimentary form. And the first radar will be fitted to a Eurofighter next year. 
There is some date about, debate about which aircraft it will actually go in, but uh, it will be a significant milestone, whichever aircraft that is, because that will be the first operational system that we fly and start testing in the aircraft. The infrared search and track comes a little bit later. Now, the older pilots in the audience will remember, as I do, that infrared systems are not new. They were fitted to American aircraft, certainly. Although I don't have personal experience, talking to people that used them in 106s and F4s, uh, they worked well and they were a considerable asset uh, to those aircraft. And as I've said, this is an important part of the attack and ident system of the aircraft. And it will be far more advanced than the systems I've just mentioned on older aircraft. As well as the various features that I mentioned on the slide, the two that I'd like to pick out is that, of course, it can be used for low flying at night along with the night vision that goggles, and it can be used for landing on blacked-out airfields. Traditionally, on aircraft I've flown, certainly, defensive aids, and by that I mean electronic countermeasures, chaff, flare, have been added to the aircraft once it was designed. They're often fitted in pods, which could only be carried on weapons pylons, and thus they reduce the weapons load. And the choice then was between flying with uh, chaff, flare, or bombs. And I can remember uh, a general, quite a well-known general, not very long ago, who said he thought the best DCM was a 500-pound general-purpose bomb. Now, I think those days are past, have passed, and I don't believe that anybody that's uh, heard about the Gulf War or watched the uh, films of the aircraft fighting in Bosnia would doubt to go into a modern, hostile airspace, one does need the defensive aid subsystem as a basic feature of the aircraft. The components of the system are here. I mentioned the wingtip pods earlier on. At the moment, we're using those to carry instrumentation. Perhaps interestingly, the first of these systems that will fly will be the towed decoy. We'll start towing that as soon as November this year. And the purpose of the trial is to show that we can deploy and tow that decoy throughout the flight envelope. I do mean the complete flight envelope of the aircraft. Now, much of the management of the uh, defensive aid system is done by computers, and it's transparent to the pilot. It obviously is managed in electronic time. And it continues with our philosophy of only showing the pilot what he needs to know, when he needs to know it. There isn't very much I can say about stealth. However, it'd be quite wrong, I think, to come and not say just a little bit about it and give the impression that it had been ignored on the aircraft. The principal features are given here. Perhaps the most important is the management of electronic emissions. But any of the fighter pilots in the audience will also realize that taking the engine compressor faces and hiding them from a direct line of sight from an enemy radar is an important feature. I've added defensive aid subsystems the point that I'm making is that all the data from these very capable systems must be combined and sorted. You, if you just presented it to the pilot in the traditional way, he'd be totally overloaded. The display, the data is displayed on uh, a head-up display and multifunction displays uh, in, a, in a form which the pilot can use when he needs it. More about that later. The avionics system is split by company, as the airframe and as the construction of the aircraft is. As you can say, displays and controls are responsibility of British Aerospace, and that's the system that I know best at the moment. One other feature I would bring out about this, and I'm going to say more about this later on, 
is that the system does have a, has a contractual requirement to have 100% growth at a, a full operational clearance. The heart of the navigation system is a laser ring gyro inertial system backed up by GPS. There is also a TACAN, which isn't mentioned in the slide because it's embedded into the data link system. The flight control system is an interesting feature to find under a navigation uh, slide. Fairly soon after producing flight control systems, uh, we realized that the skew axis gyro systems uh, make an ideal monitor for inertial systems, as well as providing rates and attitude. Now, I think you can understand in an unstable canard delta, the flight control system is very important to this aircraft's stability and control. In fact, it's essential. And so the output from the flight control system, which effectively is an inertial system from the gyros, must be reliable. And I would say that if you lose the flight control system output, you're not worried about navigation. Whether or not MLS will become the uh, landing aid of the future remains to be seen, but that is what's specified for the Eurofighter 2000 at the moment. I just hope there's some ground-based MLSs for us to uh, test it against in the near future. I, uh, as Colin mentioned, uh, I went to ETPS in uh, 1975 when the Jaguar was just entering service. And I think it makes a sobering slide to compare the software growth of aircraft from that era with the Eurofighter 2000. I remember my principal tutor, um, Pete Sedgwick might remember as well, saying in those heady days of 1975 that life would be easier for the test pilot in the future because software was easy to change. It's only software. How those words ring in my ear and how wrong he was. The aircraft has contractual obligations to meet on growth at uh, full operational clearance. The largest ones, as you would expect, are all connected with the computer systems. And given the spectacular growth of computers and computer capability, that seems to me to be a very sensible requirement. Now, not everything is computer controlled. Nearly everything is computer controlled. I've just put up some general systems aspects here. And you'll notice that computers have even got into controlling the utilities. The secondary power system, by that I mean the gearboxes, generators, and so on, are driven by engine, uh, the engine drive gearboxes. The gearboxes drive uh, AC generators, DC generators, and hydraulic pumps. And each engine can drive both gearboxes through an air crossbleed system. The advantage of an air crossbleed over a mechanical crossbleed is that by bleeding the engines, you improve the surge margin and to get away from the sort of problems that we've seen with power offtake on other aircraft. DA2 will also have a hydrazine EPU. It'll be unique in that respect and it's fitted for high incidence trials. Uh, well, just an interesting feature of the EPU, handling hydrazine is something that now becomes extremely difficult in some European countries because of health and safety work regulations. Clearly, the aircraft depends on its electrical system. I've mentioned already, as well as the uh, AC generators that all aircraft these days have, we've also got two DC generators, two transformer rectifier units, and in the production aircraft, one battery. In the prototypes that have flown so far, we've got two batteries in for fire test purposes. The fuel system, 
as well as its obvious role of supplying fuel to the engines, also is configured to keep the centre of gravity controlled in very close limits. Now, I'd like to turn a little bit uh, and go a little bit more detail into the cockpit. The first thing that drives us with the cockpit, with this aircraft looking after the data that is flowing within the aeroplane in the data bus systems, is what information does the pilot need now, and how can this be presented to him so he can assimilate it rapidly? These are the principal features of the cockpit, and one of the most important aspects I put at the top is the aircraft operates. If it's broke, it'll tell you. So if it isn't squawking at you, you get on with the operational role, it'll tell you if something's gone wrong. So the main point to make is that the displays, the head-up display, the multifunction displays provide operational data. As a pilot, of course, you can look below that at systems data, but that's your choice. Normally the cockpit will be configured for uh, a particular phase of flight and prevailing operational situation. <coughs> to make a few points, or to pick a few points out, the cockpit will have direct voice input. This is working well in ground tests, and it's proving to be a real benefit in uh, both hands-on stick and throttle and workload. There is also a voice warning system, the traditional moaning Nora, which is operational on the prototypes. Now, although the voice systems sound gimmicky, they're not. They really are serious systems, and we found them very useful and really helpful, and really helpful to the pilot operating the aircraft. This is the general cockpit display taken from a rig. In this case, these are the three multifunction displays. These two displays have operational data displayed on it. And this one has a typical systems page, which I'll come back to in a minute. The aircraft also has a wide-angle HUD. Down here is an intelligent warning system dedicated to the, to the warning system, but not like a standard CWP. It actually does prioritize the warnings and present them to you in the way they've occurred and help you go through the checklist. There are some essential engine data presented on the HUD and attitude and compass information on the right-hand uh, glare shield. On the left-hand glare shield are some buttons which are used to configure systems that you must have rapid access to, things like radios, uh, transponders, and so on, navigation system. And the main data entry into the aircraft is this keyboard here for your left hand. Down on the right-hand side of the cockpit are two sets of gangbar switches so that the pilot can get in. Again, we're looking at rapid scramble times, make the gangbars, and the aircraft is configured and ready to go. This is a typical feature of the cockpit systems. In this case, it happens to be a hydraulic system. And in this case, the pilot has uh, stopped the utility system to test it. I think it's very clear that that system is off. The pilot's taken manual control of the isolation valve. I'd also like to highlight how readily apparent it is that you can get data from this display. There's the temperature of the hydraulics. There's the quantity in the uh, accumulator. There's a cutoff value, which if the accumulator was leaking, would be the point at which the aircraft would protect its flight control system. The system is running at 280 bars on both sides, and the right system is operating normally. The system tells him that he's closed the uh, manually closed the isolation valve. This is what it would look like if one had had a hydraulic pump failure. I know it's a pump failure because the reservoirs are full. But the system is clearly failed, and it's showing red. Meanwhile, the other system is showing blue. 
This is the uh, ECRA equipment. The first time I, in my experience, the whole of the, ECRA, the pilot's closing has been thought of as a complete system. I'll show you a picture of the helmet later on. The main specification which we had to meet was to allow relaxed and routine use of Sustain 9G. So there's a full coverage anti-G trousers, which rejoice in the rather dubious name of acronym of faggots, and a pressure jerking covering the upper body. When you're pulling high G in this aircraft, oxygen under pressure is fed into the mask and thus into your lungs. To counter this pressure, a smaller pressure is fed to a jerkin, which you wear closely to your chest. Now, while effective, as I think you can see from this slide, the equipment is bulky and it's hot. Later on, we'll have a, an air ventilated, a liquid cooled suit, I beg your pardon. But we really suffered during the uh, recent hot summer, and I have to say, um, I uh, really would have appreciated a bit less G protection and a bit more cooling. I think 9G always hurts, and I think I'd rather be cold than hot. Nevertheless, with a liquid ventilated suit, uh, I think the uh, comfort of the system will improve enormously. This chap in his sartorial elegance is uh, modelling a mock-up of the full helmet system. We aren't flying this yet, we'll fly it soon. A comprehensive display is projected onto the inside of the visor and night vision goggles for the first time are integrated into the helmet and also project their image on the inside of the visor. It looks bulky, but in fact it's tolerably light and well balanced. Now helmet mounted displays are relatively new. This is just one format which could be used. I don't think this is the one we will use, but it gives the main elements of what you would put on a helmet mounted display. It has target markers, hostile, friendly and unknown. It has a reticule for aiming systems. It has a basic attitude display, a missile display and flight data. A system such as this would dramatically improve the utilization of the aircraft in the air-to-air -air role. Finally, before talking about the flight test program, the system I'll just cover briefly is the flight control system. Now, I didn't put a lot in about the flight control system. If somebody wants to ask me questions afterwards, I'm very happy to answer questions about that. But just to say a few features about it. It's a four-channel digital system. It's very closely based on what was put into the EAP and before that the Flywire Jagger and indeed the German 104 research aircraft. The FCS is the sole means of stabilizing the aircraft and thus essential to flight. Without the FCS functioning correctly, the aircraft will crash or destroy itself very quickly indeed. As I said, it's unstable in pitch supersonically and unstable directionally in high supersonic flight. So the first duty of the FCS is to stabilize the aircraft. It does this using, of course, the canard and the flaperons. The next priority of the flight control system is to respond to pilot control inputs, but within certain limits. And the flight control system automatically, or it will in the developed aircraft, automatically limit incidence, G, roll rate. And so it responds to the pilot's demands, but only within those limits. The next priority of the flight control system is to respect various structural limits, such as control actuator hinge moments and loading limits. And finally, the FCS can blend the deflections of the canards and the flaperons to maximize the lift, or rather to maximize the lift-drag ratio, and thus minimize induced drag. 
To take an example for landing, the flight control system can generate more lift from the canard by deflecting it, trailing edge down. To balance the aircraft, the flaperons are then deflected down, taking the first part of their name and acting as flaps, as well as control surfaces. There are two control laws, one with the undercarriage up for up and the way manoeuvring, and the other one optimized for the landing configuration undercarriage down. These are the control services that the FCS has to work with. I've mentioned the uh, canards. They can also be deflected fully nose down after landing to act as, uh, to keep the nose wheel hard on the ground and also to increase the drag from the aircraft. The leading edge flaps are fully variable. And as I've already mentioned, there are two sets of flaperons at the back of the wing which can be uh, deflected to increase lift during manoeuvre and during the approach. There's a single rudder and a spine-mounted air brake. The flight control system also provides a yaw feedback signal to the nose or steering to help stabilise the aircraft during the landing roll. Now finally, the flight test programme. There are seven prototypes in the flight test programme. Each aircraft has its own specific tasks to complete and thus each aircraft is unique in terms of its equipment fit. The later the aircraft, the more comprehensive the avionics system fitted and the more close they are to an operational aircraft. None of the prototypes could really be considered as truly operational. I've mentioned that DA1 and DA2 are fitted with RB199 engines, identical to those used in the F3 Tornado. DA3 is the first aircraft to fly with EJ200 engines. We'll retrofit DA1 and DA2 uh, with EJ200s later in their program. But for the moment, it's very sensible to stick with tried and tested engines in a new airframe. We've got two two-seat prototypes, DA4 at Wharton and DA6 at Casa in Madrid. And all of these aircraft will fly uh, during 1996. So those are the prototypes and what they're doing. We also have um, some instrumented production aircraft that follow the prototypes. There are five of them, and they're built to verify the production aircraft and operational systems, and perhaps just as importantly, to verify the production line tooling on the prototype tooling before the main production line tooling comes along. But as their name suggests, they are production aircraft with an instrumentation added. These aircraft are very heavily instrumented. We want to get as much information as possible from each and every flight. And indeed, the instrumentation system, I think, would warrant a whole presentation on its own. But just to make the point about the, uh, the capability of the instrumentation system, just look at this uh, blue tape on the bottom of the slide. I think that the 500k bits that we're using a second now is quite impressive, particularly compared with uh, instrumentation systems that went before this. But to me, 100 megabytes a second, which will come along later on, is just uh, Star Wars. All the time we fly the aircraft, we use hot telemetry. We're talking to a team of engineers all the time. We're in constant contact with them. And this team has access to much of the data that the aircraft is generating. And what we're trying to achieve and are achieving is real-time decisions about the progress of the flight and test points to be carried out. So when we're doing flutter testing, as we've been doing a lot of, the team of engineers on the ground, and they, some of them are quite young guys, will be making real-time decisions about whether we go from this test point, whether it's safe, to the next test point. It really does speed up the uh, program if you can have the disciplines that allow you to do that. 
The first flight of the Eurofighter was made by Peter Vega from Manchikin, 27th of March 1994, in this aircraft, DA-1. The duration of the flight was just under an hour and was successful with only a couple of minor faults on the aircraft. One of the best findings we had about the aircraft from this flight was it flew exactly like the simulator. Now that might sound like a strange thing to say, but you have to remember that the simulator is the main way that we as test pilots interact with the designers of the flight control system. And it would be equally as bad if the aircraft was very much better than the simulator as it would have been if it was very much worse. Because in either case it would have indicated an error was being made in the basic design tool. Incidentally, on this uh, slide you can see that the leading edge flaps are fully down where they were throughout the first phase of flying. Shortly after Peter Vega flew DA-2, on the uh, 6th of April, I had the honor of flying this aircraft, DA-2, from Wharton. You can see the aircraft taking off. Those of you familiar with the RB19 engine will notice that I've throttled the uh, reheats back at rotate. This was necessary because we had quite low speed limits with the aircraft initially, and I intended to climb up with the gear down to explore the handling before I put the gear off. And with the power to weight ratio of the aircraft, it would have been very easy to exceed those early limits. The flight went well, and I was very pleased with the aircraft. And I must say, I shared this pleasure with uh, thousands of people. I just didn't realize how many true enthusiasts for aircraft there were in Britain until I came back over the airfield and saw every fence around the airfield three deep in uh, people coming to see the aeroplane. I'd just like to show a video of some of the aspects of the first flight. This first trial is a ground trial where I'm deliberately cutting one reheat and leaving the other one burning to explore the handling of the aircraft on the runway following a complete engine failure. I must say the aircraft performed this test very well and uh, stopped. Like all test flying, I think it took place just before sunset. Both DA-1 and DA-2 flew regularly throughout the next two months and completed all the pre-planned tests. Even at this stage, the aircraft was reliable and we often flew and landed with no faults. This is Peter coming back in DA-1. This slide summarizes our main achievements of the initial flight phase. There are of course many others. Each aircraft flew nine times in the two months that is April and May last year. In all six pilots, three British and three German, flew the aircraft and contributed towards the envelope expansion task. The flight envelope demonstrated is given on the slide. The speed and altitude were limited at this stage because the flight control system air data feedbacks had not been activated. These are used to adjust the flight control system gains throughout the flight envelope. It was important for us to gather actual air data before fully scheduling the flight control system. Nevertheless, in this very rudimentary state, state, the aircraft flew well and the flight control system was remarkably reliable. And the transition between the laws gear up and gear down was, uh, you just couldn't notice it. I'd like to note also at this stage that the aircraft is very easy to land. It has a strong ground effect and it just cushions itself onto touchdown. It would be very difficult to make a bad landing with this aircraft. The improvements between the first and second phase uh, are given on the slide. After the first flight phase, the aircraft was grounded to be upgraded as shown here. 
There was a revised flight control system law incorporating the air data feedbacks to schedule the gains and allow a really marked envelope expansion. The cockpit, which had only been basic electromechanical instruments for phase one, had a HUD and two multifunction displays fitted. The glare shield moding switches, which I showed you, were activated. And the first stage of the intelligent warning system was introduced. Both the leading edge flaps and the air brake systems were activated. And finally, most important to a progressive flight control system, the flutter test system, which uses the flight control system to do a frequency sweep, was introduced. So after a long layup, DA2 got airborne again this year in early May. DA1 will rejoin the flight test program in September. The main task that we've been involved in is expanding the flight envelope, and this is what we've been doing. In May, we were joined by DA3, flying from Turin, and this made the first flight with EJ200 engines. You can clearly see the difference at the back of the aircraft. Here are the first flight achievements so far. Um, the program's moving on, and uh, the slide is already out of date. Uh, DA2 is now up to flight 45, 35 in this phase, and DA3 is now up to flight 11. A lot of supertonic testing has been carried out, both for handling and for flutter purposes. The aircraft maneuvers and accelerates well, and has excellent supersonic performance. For the first few flights in the, this phase, we continued to uh, chase the aircraft with a tornado. Eventually, we gave this up, mostly because we now had confidence in the aircraft and the air data system, because also because it became totally frustrating for the chase pilot, of which I did my turn, and spent an hour or so until the fuel ran out playing a game of catch-up with the Eurofighter. The slide gives the actual performance points which we've achieved to date. This is a slide of DA4, the first two-seater. Uh, as you can see, the airframe essentially stays the same. We've introduced the second cockpit and displaced a little bit of fuel up into the spine of the aircraft. This aircraft has a lot of ground trials ahead of it, but it should fly uh, before the middle of next year. And it may be one of the first aircraft to fly with a radar. Looking ahead to next year, there will be seven prototypes flying. There will be a further flight control system upgrade to allow DA2, our aircraft in UK, to explore carefree handling. Uh, a very enjoyable trial, something I always look forward to as a test pilot. The new flight control system will also permit the carriage of external fuel tanks and air-to-air -air refueling. I've mentioned the first radar flights and tow decoys, so it's a lot to go at and a busy flight test program. To summarize then, I hope I've given you a better idea of just how new and innovative the techniques are incorporated into the Eurofighter 2000. I hope they've also given you a small insight into the advances which the aircraft and its systems are over previous aircraft. It is a complex aircraft, but it will incorporate a wide operational capability into a small airframe. It will be very agile, with excellent acceleration and climb rate. In other words, a true fighter pilot's aircraft. Now, technological advances such as the ones I've described are not easily achieved. If I could echo a Grand Prix driver from last weekend when he was skating around on the wet, Murray Walker asked him uh, if he enjoyed it. He said if it was easy, everybody would do it.
Finally, that, uh, I hope to some extent by talking a few facts and figures about the aircraft, I've managed to counter at least some of the criticism of the aircraft and its program. In my view, European industry does have a potential winner on its hands. Thank you very much. I'll be happy to answer any questions that you may have. Firstly, that, Dave, and also because the uh, flight control, uh, the um, probe wasn't uh, fitted to the aircraft and active. You know, as always with these programs, there's a lot to do to get the aircraft ready, and the flight control, the, sorry, the flight refueling probe um, will be made, the system will be made active uh, next year. So it's a combination of uh, getting the flight control system right and uh, getting the probe on. Also, with any I'm always conscious with a, uh, an aircraft such as this that you need to have some experience under your belt of the flight control system in close formation before you go under uh, the belly of a tanker and uh, and really get close to uh, the uh, the wing or the uh, the you know the centerline hose. So it's really for those two reasons. Chris. As we learned from Tornado, back end shapes are uh, really sensitive. Uh, is there a noticeable difference between DA2 and DA3? Um, it does seem to be at the moment, uh, Paul, for the envelope that we've explored. DA3's envelope is a little bit smaller than the one I put up there because they're still exploring it. Um, I think I'd be able to answer that better when we've actually got back-to-back -back experience because at the moment the uh, Italian pilots haven't flown uh, DA-1 or DA-2 and we haven't flown DA-3. Um, but from their flight reports and um, from the observations that they have, no, there doesn't seem to be a difference. Could you say something uh, about two aerodynamic features of the aeroplane? Firstly, the positioning of the air brake which I think is fairly unique. Well, I should say fairly unique. It is unique. It's certainly part of the circuit. And there's been all sort of sprays just in the Okay, the air brake, taking the air brake first of all, it's always difficult to know where to put an air brake on, a, on an aircraft. Um, it either interferes with it aerodynamically or it interferes with the weapon fit or um, with something that you want to get at. One of the things that we did with the EAP was, as you say, normally one doesn't put an air brake in front of a fin. What we, one of the things we did with the EAP was to take a uh, Eurofighter air brake and fix it in position on the spine of the EAP. Now, I know that sounds quite unusual because you're flying with a hefty amount of drag uh, and one has to take into account what would you do if you had an engine failure and so on. And that was explored at various positions on the EAP. In fact, the aircraft had an adequate power-to-weight ratio so that we didn't have to worry about the, uh, the drag of the, the air brake. We explored that and we convinced ourselves that we could mount an air brake on the spine uh, without any detriment to the aircraft. I should add that it will be scheduled with uh, angle of attack, so at extreme angle of attack, the air brake would automatically schedule in. Um, 
So that was something that the Eurofighter, uh, the EAP contributed to the Eurofighter program. The advantage of putting it there, of course, is that it's, um, it allows the underneath of the aircraft to be clean for weapons and so on. And if, uh, if it could be mounted there without a detriment to the aircraft, then it's a nice place to, to put it. But you're right, normally people put it there only if they've got two fins. Now, we have flown with the air breakout. We haven't explored very much high alpha with the air breakout. Um, time will tell. Uh, as I say, based on the experiments of the EAP, it seems to be a good location from all points of view. The uh, little steps on the on the little um, streaks on the side, I've given myself away. I was going to say that uh, they actually make very convenient steps for getting into the cockpit. Well, actually, they're there to uh, shed vortices either side of the fin to stabilize the aircraft at uh, high alpha. You mentioned that the gun is being I don't think I can actually tell you how many rounds it's got, but it's a significant number. Yes, it is a weight penalty. I believe that, uh, that that's worth carrying. I, I'm, I'm still one of those people that firmly likes a built-in gun uh, for several reasons. Um, I can go into them if you like. But I, I think a gun is an essential feature of pilot for a fighter, and the weight is a worthwhile penalty to take. This is your red picture projected on the HUD, or is it S uh, Both. Sorry, no, I beg your pardon. No, I, sorry, I misunderstood. It's projected on the uh, on the uh, HUD. Um, the night vision goggles projected on the helmet. Sorry. Yeah, it's fixed for. Because I noticed that it's very uh, late on. There's a comment in one of the production of the autopilot comes in there. Is the TFR capability of the RDS not likely to be included? It seems to be a very late stage in No, it doesn't have a TFR in the sense that a IDS does, Terry. Um, well, the, um, uh, there are quite a lot of trade-offs that we did in uh, a combat simulator about the value of pulling more G or more alpha and so on. I think the point about it is that uh, um, 9G is a reasonable target for a fighter to go to. Okay, you might like to pull 10 or 11. You have to ask yourself why you're pulling that extra G, because it brings a lot of structural weight with it if you put the uh, loading of the aircraft up. And I think it was felt, all aircraft are compromises, I think it was felt, and it is felt, um, amongst the fighter community, amongst fighter designers, that 9G is a reasonable G to fight aircraft, maximum G to fight aircraft at. Pilots can work at that G, they can still operate the aircraft, and it's a compromise between the maneuverability of the aircraft, its capability, and the structural weight. I mean, the Russian aerobatic aeroplanes, I believe that we've seen at Farmer, are stressed to plus 15, um, and uh, minus 9 and minus 8. I can't see the point of going that far in a, in a, a fighter myself. I would think uh, 9G hurts me enough. I think 9G is enough. But, um, but there is a, ser a serious point is that there's a compromise between uh, extra G on the aircraft and the structural weight that you have to pay for that. And the fatigue penalty also. If people are going to use 9G frequently, the structure has to be able to take that.
Yes, but I can't tell you that, I'm afraid. But um, the, um, it's still substantial. The point about it is, of course, it's much more usable because it's limited by the flight control system. And one of the things that we found flying the EAP with uh, a limiting system was that as pilots, you, of course, on a conventional aircraft, you are concerned not to over-G the aircraft. So if you're going to explore the maximum G to the aircraft, G of the aircraft, unless you're particularly familiar with that aircraft at that weight, in that condition, you will inevitably pull to something just below the G limit and then squeeze the aircraft up to the G limit. An aircraft such as this, you can lay it on its side and just have at it, and it will limit the G. So what that tends to make you do as a pilot is that when you're maneuvering around, is you tend to exploit the capability more. Similarly, if you have an aircraft which um, this one will have, the EAP had, where you don't have rapid rolling limits, for example. In a normal aircraft, you are concerned about rapid rolling and overstressing the aircraft, and therefore, I think most of us apply a certain amount of um, care about how we roll the aircraft, what G we, we roll the aircraft at, just to stay inside the limits. You don't have to worry about it with this flight control system, so it makes the full rapid rolling envelope exploitable. Same as the full incidence limit. You don't have to worry about the incidence limit on aircraft like this. Now one of the impacts from that is that pilots, being what pilots are, will exploit that. And certainly on the AP, the uh, guys that flew it regularly, we got used to laying it on its side and sacking it up to uh, whatever G or Alpha it would give us when we wanted to turn. Uh, it's fun, but it also is a way of getting the task done uh, quickly. So I would say that the G envelopes of the aircraft and the incidents, rapid rolling the envelopes of the aircraft, are much more attainable in squadron service. It's something people won't worry about anymore. The aircraft will look after that. Yes, you mentioned in the last, in the answering the last question about the Russian aircraft airplanes. Um, do you think in the future we might see uh, the EF 2000 do something like a covert? Um, no, I wouldn't think that an unstable aircraft would uh, be able to do that. Um, I think the Russians have a unique aerodynamic ability, a combination to be able to do that. So no, I don't think so. Do you think, if I may ask, do you think it's a good tactical benefit anyone? I think there's a, it's like um, so many things in air-to-air -air combat. It's a two-edged sword. I think if you use it and somebody isn't expecting it and it allows you to get a missile shot across a turning fight, in other words, point an IR missile, then it could be an advantage. I think you'd better get it right because, of course, if you do that, you're sitting in the sky with the, no energy. Now, that's never a very happy place to be with any fighter. So it's, uh, it's one of those tactics that one could use would be an advantage probably on day one of the war. I think the people that survived would have learnt about that one and it would become something that would be difficult to use um, when it wasn't a surprise element. So I think it does have a, it does have a place, um, but it's that place. If you, if you end up, I think, in the sky with no energy uh, and there are anybody else around or you don't get the guy you're shooting at, then you really are in, uh, in a poor way. Sorry, Terry? Yeah, I was just interested in the two-seater. Is that uh, entirely intended as really a training vehicle, or does it have any 
further operational. No, it has a full operational capability. But does it have an extended operational capability in the system, or is it going to be merely duplication of the single-seater? It's a duplication of the single-seater at the current standard. Um, what I was hinting at when I was saying the argument about two-seat versus uh, single-seat is that it does seem that uh, two-seat aircraft tend to be exploited for uh, tasks that I've mentioned, things like defense suppression, marking targets, things that are, are require uh, two men to perhaps operate the system. But at the moment, it's a replica of the uh, single aircraft. It has a full operational capability plus the uh, training role. Chris, at the beginning, you emphasized very properly the need to control weight in an airplane. I'm sorry I'm old fashioned about weight, not mass, but do same thing. Um, 25 years ago, 1970 time, John Fossard, the chief designer of the Hyatt, was clearly intent on controlling the weight of that airplane for obvious reasons. Uh, we had a fixed engine thrust, we needed to bear the takeoff and land vertically, we needed about a hopper to sell it. There was an exchange rate in those days of £30 sterling paid to any designer or any fitter who could get one pound of weight out of the airplane because of his, his, uh, his suggestion. And uh, this was, this was a, an amount that was calculated at that time. I gather with inflation, I guess with inflation it would be 150 quid or something now. Do you have any such uh, <laughs> notion around these days? If not, you must have a big well, it's a jolly good idea because obviously all the weight we can save. We, um, the answer is no, John. We don't actually have it in that explicit way. We have a very good suggestion scheme in the uh, uh, company that encourages people to, to come up with that. But they, there's no doubt about it that the designers do struggle uh, to take grams out of the aircraft. Um, when things change, they're always looking to do it to the minimum weight because they always have that in mind that they have this specification point of weight growth. And what was true in the Harrier is, just, I mean, it's not as clear uh, in a wingborne aircraft as it is in a V-style aircraft. And nevertheless, the end product for the aircraft, its power-to-weight ratio, is, is just as clear, I think, in this aircraft. And it's just as worth searching for that goal because 10 years down the track, we look back and the performance of the aircraft that's in service, it'll pay off. Well, when you look at what weight growth has done to the performance of the F-16 family, for example, yes. you really have got to nail that point. Yes, absolutely. Chris, is the uh, applying control software for the two-seater going to be necessarily different? No, it's the same, except that, of course, you have the capability of um, uh, taking control and, and having two uh, sticks which are not mechanically linked. So the flight, the flight control system has to respect that. And you have, have to have a strategy for an instructor taking over or overriding a pupil. But the flight controls, because the envelope, the, the size of the aircraft and its structure is the same, the flight control system should be the same. And I wouldn't expect there, I wouldn't think it would be supportable in service to have a different flight control system in the uh, two-seater. And uh, as a supplementary, is your carefree handling uh, software or system going to cater for the minimum speed implied that uh, with an unstable airplane you can't get to the zero speed, is it? Uh, is it going to take care of 
Yes, it has an auto uh, recovery. It won't let you put the aircraft into a position where um, it would not have enough aerodynamic control to stabilize itself. And that will be one of the features we'll be looking at in a later program, not next uh, year when we get the first carefree handling software, but later on we'll be um, looking at that. No. No. It's like a conventional aircraft in that sense. Is there any no. So the ejection seat, I didn't mention the ejection seat. Uh, we're flying with a Mark 10 at the moment. The later aircraft will have Mark 16 seats, which are quite an advanced seat. But in the se same sense as the, um, um, the aircraft is conventional in that sense, it's like having a, a normal aircraft. The ejection seat is there, operated by the pilot when the pilot wants to use it. It's not in any way connected with an aircraft automatic system. I guess you're thinking about the um, uh, Russian Vistol aircraft, which has automatic ejection, I think. That's the only aircraft I can think of that has it. It's probably quicker than you could actually get out of the aircraft. Um, the point about that is if you're going to design a flight control system like that, you have to put mechanisms in place and design mechanisms and uh, uh, software check mechanisms that uh, let you have confidence that you've designed a flight control system that is safety critical and where um, a failure is remote enough that you wouldn't have a failure like that in the life of the fleet of the aircraft. And that's really the most difficult thing about designing flight control systems. I think writing the, uh, you know, people can sit down and write the control laws and the code fairly easily. It's giving yourself the confidence that you've covered off every eventuality and every aspect of that software, that the computers are always going to function, that the data is always going to be there, the flight control is always going to work, the computers are not going to crash. You simply can't do that. And that's what you've touched on there, I think, is the, is the, um, the hardest part about the flight control system. But of course people are doing it. I mean the A320 does have a, a, a flight wire system. True, the aircraft isn't unstable, but nevertheless the aircraft flies um, passengers um, without ejection seats and it's gone through its airworthiness requirement to allow it to do that. So the designers of this aircraft obviously have the fallback that there is an ejection seat in the aircraft but of a large part of the flight envelope, as, as you pointed out, if the flight control system just failed, the aircraft would depart very rapidly. So you have to convince yourself that you've gone through all those disciplines to make the flight control system adequately reliable um, and predictable, um, that you don't get into that problem. In, in comparing to the range of motion itself, is it always Neutral in the middle, or that was really trim. Yes, trim. It's always trim central. Always trim central. Yes. So it's not a. It's not like a conventional stick displaced to trim. It's like the Buccaneer system was the the most obvious example I can think of in conventional flight control systems. If the aircraft is, if the aircraft is flying level, you're not demanding a rate out of it. The stick is central. 
Indeed, what we do through most of the flight envelope is that uh, there is no trim in the aircraft. It is um, the, we've removed the trimming, need for trimming completely, and the aircraft will self-trim. Um, where we've retained uh, trimming is in the landing approach with the gear down. We did quite a lot of experiments with that, and we feel that uh, I feel particularly that trimming is an important cue to the pilot when you're doing an instrument flying a task, particularly something like making an approach, an instrument approach, um, having the stick displace with the load um, as you make the approach is an important key clue to you what the speed is doing, what the aircraft is, is doing. And I still find that useful. But up and away, the aircraft doesn't, you don't need to trim the aircraft. Chris, can I follow on that point? The, the Levee is an aeroplane that stays in trim. Um, I found I never knew what speed I was flying at unless I looked at the airspeed Whereas with all the aeroplanes, of course, you're well aware that you change the speed. Yes. The, it's, uh, the, I agree that's a balance, John. That's why we retained it for the approach. We really found that it added in, in the approach, and we did quite a lot of tests on in simulators in other aircraft because. Um, on the Flywire Jaguar, for example, and the EAP, we could do an approach with the gear up and have a no-trim approach. Um, putting, the gear, putting the gear down made the aircraft uh, easier to fly for the reasons that you say. What we found with up-and-away flying, once the aircraft's away from the uh, low-speed approach configuration, that really you could manage the aircraft without trimming, and it was an advantage to be able to do something like a ground attack dive or an attack without trimming the aircraft, and have the aircraft simply go down the dive or down the flight path you wanted on rails. Like everything in the aircraft, is it a compromise? But I think that's a reasonable compromise to go to have. Pseudo-static stability for the approach, not have it for up and away flying. I think the Airbus has got something similar in terms of trim. Not, not within the goal. Uh, Certainly in the, uh, the laws that I flew in the 111 didn't have um, static stability or pseudo-static stability. They would always stick neutral, no, no rates. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Colin never works with trim, do you? <laughs> <laughs> right, well, I think Chris has sent this. There's just one there. Oh, is it? All right, one more. One last one. Oh, yeah, who can I come in? Would you care to comment on uh, spectrum technology and whether you feel it may ultimately have anything to offer your appliance over? Well, I think it is a coming technology. Um, there's no doubt about that. And uh, anyone who saw the X-31 at Paris and the American research aircraft would see that as a technology which is uh, just on the horizon. The problem with any aircraft when you design it is where do you stop? Because there's always another technology coming along. Um, and that one, of course, wasn't mature when the Eurofighter design was um, laid down. Um, it's a technology I think may have a place for the aircraft, but I think what we should do is get the basic one into service and get that flying in service, and that perhaps is something to come along later on. But uh, certainly uh, engines like the EG200 should loan themselves to that sort of technology. So I 
I'd like to just call on Terry uh, Newman, member of our committee, to speak with us. When I arrived this evening, I'm proud of giving a bit thanks to you because this is all military and fine stuff, and I'm now a civil test pilot. Well, Colin wouldn't have that as an excuse, so here I am. Say thank you to, uh, to Chris. I think it was a setup because um, obviously Chris knew I was coming along because he started talking about this straight away about this middle aged spread business, so he knew I was going to be here. The second one which he came up with was the uh, the fact that um, a little barb at me, I'm sure, that it's impossible to make a bad landing on this aircraft since he knows I was the officer I see bad landing test points on the tornado. <laughs> and the third one was that uh, they choose a civil TP who won't be controversial. Well, he did all of the controversial bits for me by saying that it was difficult to keep up in the tornado and we've debated this in a long time when, uh, when I was playing with the tornado. There was one other thing which uh, came up on one of the slides which I thought was interesting because uh, it's a civil-military comparison. It was this ability to recover from unusual attitudes. Highly controversial uh, statement made very recently in a presence um, by Bernard Ziegler of Airbus that um, we can do it. Do you want it? Would we be able to get it certificated? Because there's obviously been in the civil world one or two accidents where pilots have got into unusual attitudes failed to recover from them. So I thought that that was an interesting point. Anyway, um, thank you very much. Most interesting. I, uh, I note that um, somebody once summarized that the test pilot was a seeker and speaker of truth. Um, appreciate as much candor as you could give us tonight on the aircraft and the limitations. I remember being put under similar limitations myself. Um, I think you've got a unique fortune in being in the right place at the right time. I remember when I was uh, doing research for a speech that about 1951, in a period of three months, there were four British proto prototype aircraft flew. Um, it's about one every 40 years now, so I must say you're very lucky. I envy you. I suppose uh, I must have a second best job now. <laughs> Thank you very much for speaking to us this evening. It was thoroughly enjoyable. and hope to hear about it again in the future.